0: Hello from Brooklyn, I'm Brendan Hart, and welcome to Super Cities, a no BS deep dive conversation about the people and trends moving cities forward. All views expressed are my own and do not reflect our sponsors or partners. Let's get into it. On this episode of Super Cities, we do a deep dive with Anthony Barrows, managing director at Ideas42, a firm that applies behavioral science to society's most difficult problems. We cover public policy, behavioral science, and public incentives, and the importance of localizing impact. Anthony teaches us a lot. Let's hear from him. We'd like to start the podcast with a little bit of context. How did you end up as the managing director of Ideas 42?
1: Yeah, so my background professionally is actually in child welfare. So I spent over a decade doing work in um, foster care and adoption, working with teenagers in the foster care system. And in that work, one of the things that I noticed is uh, as anyone would tell you that's worked in child welfare or juvenile justice or criminal justice, was the incredible racial disparities that you see in those systems. So people of color, particularly black, brown, and native kids. Come into contact with these systems at much higher rates and then they have much worse outcomes all the way through these systems so in child welfare uh, they get removed at higher rates they stay in foster care for longer they get adopted less frequently and then they have later in life outcomes that are much worse and so this was perplexing to me because i like many other people many other social workers i am a person of color and so you know my my father's from mexico i grew up poor i grew up in these same neighborhoods And so were many of the same people, uh, uh, so, so many of the people around me were in the same boat. You know, we were from these communities. We wanted to help people. But we were reproducing the racist zeitgeist of the culture around us. Right. And that just didn't make sense. So I started reading a lot of the social psychology and some of the pop behavioral science literature around things like implicit bias. And this gave me some explanatory concepts for what you might call structural racism. But I still had no idea what to do with that. So, okay, I can explain it and I can point to the psychological phenomenon. Sure. But that doesn't mean that I have any, you know, role, anything to do with it. So eventually I went back to grad school to get a public administration degree um, because I needed to um, be able to advance in my career. And while I was there, I learned that there were organizations that actually used some of these insights from social psychology and elsewhere. Out in the real world to try to make a difference on things like racial disparities, using some of the insights from social psych or behavioral econ or elsewhere, and so I just kind of wormed my way into Ideas Forty Two <laughs> to try to make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like that's one of the consistent themes with with
0: some of uh, the people that I most uh, appreciate and respect. They they just sort of find themselves into in, in a position where um, where they're working on compelling uh, space. So how long? How long have you been at Ideas42?
1: I've been here for um, about five and a half years. I started in 2013. Okay. And um, in that time, what we've been doing, on on my teams anyway, is really thinking about uh, poverty. And we conceive of it actually as economic justice, the work that we're trying to do. And so in thinking about what behavioral science has to offer when it comes to something like, call it economic mobility, call it poverty, call it economic justice, it really has to be rooted in the fact that there's a couple of things going on in any society that has incredible inequality or, or really bad outcomes for people that don't have a lot of money. So there's a structural angle to it. And so I won't go into a big critique of, you know, 21st century capitalism, but there's like structures that keep people where they are class-wise. Right. But then there's also a behavioral aspect to it. And so applied behavioral science gives us a chance to think about how people's choices and people's actions might go awry and might stray from their own intentions or best wishes. And so that's really the area where we think we can make a difference both in terms of helping people that don't have a lot of resources live better lives, make choices that align with their own values and their own intentions, convert those choices that they've already made into actions more frequently, but also importantly to help decision makers and service providers create an environment that makes it easier for people without a lot of resources to succeed. And so that's the endeavor that we're up to at Ideas 42 broadly is thinking about how context matters. And we frequently use the metaphor of a cockpit when we're talking to people uh, about their programs, about policies, about services. Um, and it's because of uh, one of the like um, founding myths of um, behavioral science. And so uh, you've probably heard this on other podcasts or read about it elsewhere, but there was a psychologist, Alphonse Chapanas, who helped Um, redesign an aspect of the cockpit of the Mm B-17, which was having problems on takeoff and landing, um, by manipulating a portion of the physical environment to make it easier for pilots to, by touch and by sight, differentiate the switches for the tail flaps and the landing gear. And so we use that story to illustrate the fact that everything in a man-made environment, which includes policies, which includes programs, is a choice. And this is the same insight that you would read about in Nudge and elsewhere. Everything that we create as a society um, has choices built into it, including um, how people interact with it. And so if you're a policymaker, even if you're like a frontline social worker or you're a person that works in an after-school program, if you're sending people emails, if you're creating posters to advertise for your services, if you're choosing when your organization opens its doors and closes them, those are all choice and action environments. In essence, those are the cockpits that you're asking people to fly in and make choices. And so do you make those choice environments, those cockpits, easy for people to navigate? Or do you make them difficult? Interesting.
0: All right. So so can, can we zoom out just uh, for a second? I just want to make sure we understand what behavioral science is, how does it work, how is it applied, and what problem— is it solving? I think I know the answer, but but I want to I want to hear you talk through this, if you would.
1: Certainly. So, uh, applied behavioral science is broadly the field that we at Ideas 42 work in, and what applied behavioral science does is to take research insights from a variety of fields, most prominently behavioral economics and social psychology, um, as well as allied disciplines, you know, the judgment and decision making field, sure. et cetera. Um, So we take those research insights, which have been generated through kind of observational studies, lab studies, et cetera, and we try to operationalize them to make a difference in the real world. Mm. So one example of this might be some of our work that we do here in New York City. So um, you and some of your listeners may be familiar with the FAFSA. Mm-hmm. So this is the free application for federal student aid. It's a right. form that people have to fill out to get financial aid, like Pell Grants from the right. federal government. Right. And it is the only way that you can get access to that source of aid. But also many states and many individual institutions require you to fill that out in order to get their aid, so state aid or private institutional aid, because it gives you a sense of the eligibility of a family or a student. So... What does behavioral science have to do with solving a problem in that context? Well, in that context, you see what we call an intention-action gap. Okay. And these intention-action gaps uh, exist all over human experience. But in this particular context, what we see is that in many schools, students, when they apply um, and get admitted to school, will usually fill out the FAFSA when they're transitioning from high school to college. hmm But then going into their sophomore year of college, many students fail to submit the FAFSA, um, despite the fact that they may have gotten financial aid before and that they definitely filed it before. Right. And so the fact that they filed it before and were getting financial aid that they um, became eligible for through filing the FAFSA indicates that they have an intention, a desire, a need to get financial aid and they um, used this vehicle to do it previously previously. But then they fail to convert that intention into an action subsequently, despite the fact that they're still in school and they probably still need the money. Right. And so this is akin to many kinds of circumstances Mm -hmm. that you see all over human experience. Mm -hmm. So um, I intend to go to the gym in the morning. Right. But then when I wake up, I'm hitting my snooze button instead of dragging myself out of bed and off to the elliptical machine. Um, I go to the doctor and I get, um, you know, medication for high blood pressure. Uh, but then I fail to take it. It just sits in my medicine cabinet and I forget about it. Right. Um, I, uh, in, intend to read to my kid every night. Uh, but by the time bedtime rolls around, I'm tired and you know, it, I'll do sure. it tomorrow. Sure. You know? So these are all examples of the intention action gap. We, um, understand that something's good for us. We want to do the thing, but we fail repeatedly to do it. And so dragging us back to the context of the FAFSA. What does behavioral science have to do to help close that intention-action gap, to help people do more of what they want and less of what they don't? In this case, we went and did some qualitative research with college students, and we ran projects in several schools around the country. And what we found was that there were a couple things misfiring in the environment. There were a couple design flaws in the cockpit, if you will. So the first thing that we learned was that people maybe had inaccurate mental models of what the FAFSA was about. So some students just thought, hey, I filed FAFSA. I only have to do it once, right? right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, clearing up some of those misperceptions was— Which is a reasonable— Totally reasonable, yeah. right?
0: Uh, I, I filed once. I'm going to be a college student. What, what's the sort of purpose of annual re- reporting, right? Uh, Indeed.
1: Indeed. There's no a priori reason that you should have to like right. do it over and over again, <laughs> right? right? clearing up that inaccurate mental model is one thing. Pure forgetting is another thing. So maybe I, you know, like, I don't know how many times you've meant to, let's say, mail a bill or many, uh, pay a parking ticket or something, <laughs> right. but we've all been there where we knew we had to do something, um, couldn't do it in the moment, maybe tacked it to our fridge and forgot about it. So mm-hmm. there's forgetting. Mm-hmm. There's also a connected concept of procrastination, um, which can sometimes look and feel like forgetting, even if it isn't, um, where something's painful or complicated, difficult, and so we put it off and put it off and put it off. Um, But then there's another piece of this, which was also really interesting, which is that the complexity itself could get in the way, particularly for students who may have to deal with their parents or caregivers in order to get tax information to complete the FAFSA. Sure. So we devised a series of communications that we sent through the schools that we were partnering with that tried to deal with all of those circumstances. So let's correct the mental model. You need to make sure to file your FAFSA every year if you want to get financial aid. Um, Let's attack the complexity by breaking it down into steps. So instead of one reminder email, we sent up to nine. Hmm. In terms of the things like forgetting and procrastination, we had to kind of get at people's motivation. So um, to capture people's attention, we did things like using loss framing language in our messaging uh, because it's more likely to capture your attention and motivate action than gain framing. So an example of this is if I were to say, hey, you could get $3,000 in financial aid for next year if you just spend half an hour filling out this form, that'll motivate some people. More likely though, you'd be motivated more deeply and more quickly if I said, hey, remember that $3,000 that you got last year that you're going to get next year? You're going to lose that unless you spend this half an hour filling mm-hmm. out the paperwork. Mm-hmm. So that simple switch of sure. framing things into um, a loss framing um, really helps to, to motivate folks. Interesting. And for this example, for FAFSA,
0: does the foundational research exist already and you're applying it to to different use cases or are you, your team, your partners um, conducting the research to then apply um,
1: your, your, your solution set? So it's an interesting mix of things. Okay. Um, and one of the most important studies in regards to the FAFSA was done by a group of researchers So um, I think that the paper is Bettinger et al. And so um, Bettinger, Eric Bettinger, Phil Oriopoulos, Bridget Terry Long, and some others did some work with the FAFSA at tax preparers. And so this is another kind of fundamental premise of what we were trying to do and what Ideas 42 tries to do more broadly, which is to reduce hassles. So we know that if something is filled with hassles or difficulties, naturally people are going to do less of that thing. Sure. So if the thing is a good thing to do that people want and need, we should make it easier for them to get access to it. Yep. Makes sense. And so what the experiment that these researchers did um, entailed was to give people um, either no guidance at a tax preparer's office – Um, to give them pure information about the FAFSA. Hey, looks like you've got a college student age person in your home. Here's some information about the FAFSA and how it would be good. Um, Or else they gave them some help. And that help entailed pre-populating much of the FAFSA on the basis of tax information from the return that they just filed and the offer to help them complete and file it in the moment. And I don't have the study in front of me, so I'm not going to quote you any actual percentages. But what they found, unsurprisingly, was that the offer of help really outperformed pure information or no information at all in terms of getting people to file the FAFSA. And so that might sound trivial, and maybe it is. Like, of course, if you give people help, they'll do more of a thing. Sure. The really interesting and important insight, though, was downstream where they also saw an important and statistically significant increase in people actually attending college. And so that raises the question of, okay, well, why give people help? You know, if they really want to do a thing, then they'll be motivated to do it. Sure. If they really need the help, then the people that need it the most will work the hardest to get it. Right. And that's unfortunately not true.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) Despite
1: that being a very common trope. Right. Interesting. So let me try to
0: interpret what what you just described the idea is that if you can if you can help someone with the fafsa that increases their likelihood that they will attend
1: college at, at least in a correlational way, uh, we can sh- we can sh- speculate about yeah, the cause. Right, yeah. right. Um,
0: <laughs> okay. Re- reverse case: if they don't complete the FAFSA, their their likelihood of incurring a necessary costs goes up.
1: Indeed. Um. And and maybe their likelihood of going to college in the first place decreases too. Right. But right. That's what it would seem to suggest. Right. Yes. And and so if you can if you can
0: help them fill out their FAFSA, and by extension help them attend college. Then they're an environment to learn and and grow, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which has downstream effects of empowerment and uh, socialization uh, and economic and mobility. Economic mobility. Well. Yes. Right. Right. So so what's the term you use for I, I would use the term sort of inflection point if you can if you can uh, have an intervention at this moment. Uh-huh, uh-huh. There are these cascading upside benefits is.
1: Yeah. Um, that's a great question. One that's debated a great deal. And I think what the research suggests is, if I can totally oversimplify, please, the earlier, the better. Yeah. And so a lot of resources are being pointed toward early childhood, frankly. Mm-hmm. And we know that You know, high quality early childhood education is a really important resource for later in life well-being and achievement. Um, And so we do at Ideas 42, on on my teams anyway, um, focus a great deal on what's called the two-generational model. Okay. And so this is a model that's been advanced by Ascend at the Aspen Institute, among others, that is at its heart a behavioral insight. Which is to say that if you have some kind of program that's trying to serve children and you're not thinking about the fact that they're embedded in a family with parents or caregivers and you don't account for them in the way that you design the program, you know, the likelihood that that program maximizes its benefits goes way down. And the flip side of that coin is also true. If you, let's say, are doing education or workforce development with adults and those adults happen to be parents or caregivers Mm -hmm. and you're not accounting for the fact that they've got a child at home or maybe an elderly parent or um, an ill relative that they need Mm -hmm. to be a caregiver for, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: how are you setting them up to succeed? Right. And so, again, think about the cockpit. You know, when you're putting people in a choice and action environment, What are you doing to build in fail-safes? How are you setting up that environment to help people um, over and over again make the right choices without erring? Um, And so that's that's what we really do believe is that um, it's super important for us as folks that understand the way that humans choose and act to work with programs that we know are beneficial for people in the short, medium, and long run uh, to just work better for the people that need it. Yeah, yeah. And, and by taking that insight of think about a family holistically, and just because you're serving one person doesn't mean you can exclude thinking about the others in that environment, um, is one that we try to take to heart. And so we're doing a lot of work, for example, with the WIC program. So um, uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program is SNAP, but there's a different Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program called WIC. And it serves um, pregnant mothers and families with kids up to five years old um, to give them good nutritional education as well as um, healthy foods um, to to keep them physically well. And it's a great example of a two-generational program that the federal government stood up. It's been around for more than 40 years, Um, has a lot of research tied to it that says when people access it, Kids are born at a healthier weight. They have fewer things like anemia that slow their growth and development. Um, and they wind up later in life having better educational outcomes, better health outcomes, better mental health outcomes. And so we know that these programs are out there, WIC, Head Start, all kinds of things. Sure. And so that's what we're trying to do is um, figure out what behavioral science has to offer to these programs that we know are good mm-hmm. and work. mm mm-hmm. To get more people in the door
0: mm-hmm.
1: and to keep them there for longer so that people can get what is in essence a full dosage of a good program.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Can we break apart this, this WIC program? What are the component parts? It is do families receive funds monthly? Are there learning obligations? Are there tax components? Are there are there sort of coupon-like benefits? So, what, what are the what are the, the functional parts <laughs> of um of WIC and and what's what's the insight of of how to improve usage through the through this seemingly very valuable program?
1: Yeah. So the st- So the nutrition assistance program that most people will be familiar with is probably Food Stamps, a.k.a. SNAP. Right. And we work on that too. Okay. And that's um, a very straightforward, mostly fungible transfer of a food voucher that you can make a choice of any food that's eligible, so not prepared foods and certain other kinds of things. And so that's what most people think about when they think about these food transfer programs. WIC is different. So WIC really is... Focused on this prenatal to five year old range. Okay. And is what many people would describe as a food prescription. Okay. And so people do get food and formula um, if they're not breastfeeding or if they're partially breastfeeding. And they will take this voucher, um, a WIC voucher, to a grocery store. And it's a highly prescriptive set of things that they can get. Okay. (laughs) You can get exactly X ounces of this kind of milk and exactly Y ounces of these kinds of cheese. And you can get this, you know, number of um, dried beans. Mm-hmm, and so it's mm-hmm. highly prescriptive. Okay. And that's for a reason, you know, like the the foods are healthy and kind of affordable and so forth. Um, but it does present some challenges. Sure. Because it can be... Difficult and time consuming to go through the grocery aisles and not just shop for, you know, your normal groceries, but also find these very highly prescribed items. So specific brands and specific sizes. And you have to buy them within a certain amount of time because your coupons would expire, et cetera. So one of the things that we've been doing in WIC in regards to the shopping experience is trying to help people um, imagine different ways. That that shopping experience could be improved, particularly now that we're moving toward a moment in 2020 where all of WIC will no longer be in that paper coupon form, but instead will be held on plastic cards. So electronic benefits transfer cards or okay. like credit cards. Mm-hmm. And what that's going to do is take away that shopping list. So if it was difficult already to find the like eight ounces of Land O'Lakes butter sure, or whatever. Sure. Now you have to, like, remember it or remember to bring a list that tells you what it was because you're no longer going to have the physical object that reminds you of those things. Sure, sure. So we've done a lot of interesting work and thinking about how do you improve that shopping experience? And some of it might be um, facing the consumer, so the family. um, But a lot of it, and we haven't gotten a lot of traction here yet, um, really would be with the retailer. So, how do you, as a grocery store, improve the shopping experience for people using WIC vouchers or SNAP, for that matter, without isolating them, without creating stigma, without making it necessarily obvious right. that you know this person is going to shop in the WIC you section or You don't want the WIC something. aisle, right? Right. Um, so, there's it's a it's a tough balance. So, but that's only one component of WIC as a program. Sure, is um, providing this food free to people. There's also um, a big component of nutrition education, and there's a big component around breastfeeding education and support as well. Um, So there's a whole lot of moving pieces. Sure. And so we've been working in California and both San Jose and Los Angeles, as well as now in several communities in Texas to try to improve a variety of um, outcomes related to WIC. Most importantly, we're trying to make sure that people stay on the program past their children's first birthday. And so this is where we see the most marked drop-off. And there's some competing hypotheses about what's driving that, um, some of which are like purely economically rational things, Mm -hmm. and some of which we think are not. So one feature of the program is that if you are not breastfeeding, you're only partially breastfeeding an infant, you get formula and formula is extraordinarily expensive. Right. However, that formula goes away at year one. And so many families are dropping out when that formula goes away. And it could be because the economics just don't make sense. Right. Because you've got to go to the office and have these visits and prove your income and do a variety of medical things. And it just may not square with people. But we think that part of that um, may be because of the way people are conceiving of the value of the program. Okay. And if it's purely an economic transaction, then yeah, maybe it doesn't make sense for you to lug your kids to these offices at unhelpful and inconvenient times to do kind of unpleasant things. However, um, if you could reimagine the worth of the program, because people are in fact getting pretty valuable nutritional advising and so forth, as well as continuing to get food. Um, Our thinking is that maybe if people can anchor themselves on the overall value of the program, that they might be more interested in sticking around. So who are are the stakeholders
0: in in this example? Who are you interfacing with? So recipients, recipient families, federal stakeholders, local stakeholders, city stakeholders, all of the above, just – Try to try to help us conceptualize what a mm-hmm. um, what a stakeholder community around a particular problem set mm-hmm. may be.
1: Totally varies. Um, so in the case of WIC, we do work with the state level bodies that tend to oversee the local level offices that actually provide the services. Okay as well as interfacing always with the frontline participants. Mm-hmm. So let me kind of walk down a side path here and Please. give you a little editorial about people. Um, so we really believe that it's critically important to drive change with the voice of the people at, at the heart of that change. And so all of our research includes feedback from frontline consumers and users. And in the WIC case, they're called participants. Sure. And so we do a ton of like quantitative research to try to understand, Hey, you know, uh, if there's a drop-off problem in an organization, you know, when is it happening in the funnel or the user journey? And is it located in some subgroup in a disproportionate way? Um, and that quantitative stuff is really important but it's also super critical to get qualitative information Sure. and to really understand from the point of view of the folks that are using a service, a program, a policy, what, what do they even experience? How do they conceive of what they're doing? What does it mean to them? How does it interact with their, their values or their expectations and their identity? And so that's been a critical uh, uh, component of the work that we've done in WIC is to get that firsthand experience from both WIC participants, from families, as well as from frontline staff, so that we can understand how they interact with each other, what they believe about themselves and each other, sure. how they conceive of the value of the program. And this is part of what led us to this hypothesis that people might be... Um, they might have what we call time-inconsistent preferences. So if you go read the literature, <laughs> you, you can understand what that means. But in essence, you might also hear about it called being called present bias. So right now tends to feel much more valuable and important than any other time past or present. And because of that, we might declare things in the moment that are inconsistent with our preferences at other times. And so I talked to you earlier about hitting the snooze button. That's a time-inconsistent preference. So Anthony at 10 o'clock last night says to himself, I'm really going to hit the gym in the morning. Right. And then 6.30 comes and my preferences are now inconsistent from one moment to the next. Even though you believe them in last night. And I will believe them again this afternoon. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) And that's because right now is just a different way of experiencing Mm -hmm. your your choices, your preferences, your wants, your needs. um, And that has really serious impacts on how you act. And so, we, after talking to frontline participants in WIC, found that at the beginning of their engagement with the WIC program, A vast majority of them say that they uh, value the program and that they intend to stick around for the whole five years. Hmm. But something's misfiring once they get to that one-year mark. And so we really aren't trying to convince people that it's a good program. They already think it's a good program. We're not trying to um, coerce them into staying around longer. They think that they want to stay around Mm -hmm. longer. And so what we're trying to do is maybe help them remember what's valuable um, to themselves about the program. And help them at the beginning of their journey through the program, imagine it as an entirety instead of kind of hitting reset every time that they have to recertify. Yeah. And we're hopeful that that might um, keep more people in if they're conceiving, if their mental model is more holistic of what the program is and they're conceiving of it as a multi-year journey Mm -hmm. instead of a thing that they have to opt into every year. So we're we're currently running an RCT out in California to test whether or not this is true.
0: What what is an RCT?
1: Ah, sorry, sorry for the jargon. No, so,
0: no, <laughs> this is it's, it's it's an entryway into a, a point that um, that I think is is important to cover at some point, which is your use of language. Yes, and and the the utility of language as an instrument of progress and and um, utilization. Yes. Right. Um, so, so let's please. let's
1: hit those two in that order. Um, randomized controlled trials are RCTs. And in essence, they're just experiments. Mm-hmm. And so we um believe in science, you know, and like evidence yes. mean, is a good thing. So if you want to make inferences about one thing causing another, a really good way to do that is by running an experiment where you divide a population in half and Um, that usually means that they're more or less identical in a variety of ways, observable and not. Mm -hmm. And if you give one half of that population a thing and the other half not, and you can be reasonably certain that there is isn't overlap between those two populations, and then you observe what they do over time, and you see meaningful differences in the group that got something as compared to the one that didn't. You can make reasonable inferences that whatever it was that you did, which was probably the only thing that was meaningfully different about these populations, was the thing that caused the difference. And so in this case, um, we're taking a portion of families that are participating in WIC in communities in Los Angeles, and we're giving them uh, what we're calling a journey map. And so this is the thing that they do when they first interact with WIC, where they imagine the next two years of their interaction with WIC, with the program, with the staff. And we've tried to tie it to their motivation for being in the program, sure, which is wanting to be a good parent and keep their kids healthy. Mm-hmm. And so we've tied each of their moments that they have to come to a meeting at the WIC office to important child development milestones. And so by helping them understand – and plan into the future for the reasons for being part of WIC that are tied back to their identity as a good parent who keeps their kids healthy and lays out in very explicit terms how coming to WIC helps you do more of that thing that you want to do, which is good parenting. Mm -hmm. We're hopeful that that can demonstrate an effect in keeping more people in the program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So rather than
0: a participant... Um, having to go to a mandatory meeting you change the the framing of, and the language um, that uh, that surrounds the program indeed. to to tie it more directly to active good parenting uh,
1: related to child's health indeed that sounds that and, sounds reasonable to me and and basically every parent wants the best for their kids Sure. And so, if you can show them how you can, you as a parent can deliver on that, that'll help motivate people.
0: And how long will this um, RCT uh, last? So, how, how how much time do you need in order to um, to capture enough data to 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 make uh, you know determinations about viability?
1: The overall project length for this randomized control trial, in regards to the journey map and WIC will last a, about a year and a half so this isn't one of those mammoth five-year multi-million dollar <laughs> right, um, right but we think we'll learn enough to know whether to do more got it. Yeah. Um, and talk to me a little bit about
0: the the language that uh, c- component I think this is yes. a really interesting element of of your work, especially as you're dealing with a diverse group of stakeholders who, yes. who may not speak the language of behavioral science
1: yes. Important multiple level observation that you're making there. So, I frequently will fail to de dragonize my speaking. So, I'm glad (laughs) that you made me explain what that is. Um, But at a more basic level, it's super important for us to think about the language that we use because, again, context matters. Sure. And if we're thinking about the way that many programs interact with their clientele, or the way that government interacts with the public and its residents and citizenry, um, it's often through communication, mails, posters, letters, text messages. Right. And that is all rooted in language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And language is super powerful because it can tell us a lot of things or it can hide things from us. And it can send us signals about who we are in a certain circumstance and can transmit to us information about the value of who we are and what we're doing. So there's an example that we like to give in thinking about the power of language and how we often overlook it, which is to consider two programs that do essentially the same thing, Mm -hmm. but are framed very differently. Okay. So, on the one hand, you've got TANF. TANF is a federal program that transfers money to families that don't have a lot of it. It's the uh, it's called the um, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families Program. Okay. And it is the thing that replaced um, AFDC, traditional welfare, um, after the welfare reforms of the 1990s. Okay. So, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, TANF. You get cash. Yep. There's another program that serves a very similar population, and it's called the ITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit. Mm -hmm. So let's consider these two programs that are doing essentially Mm -hmm. the same thing, handing money over Mm -hmm. um, that people can use in any way that they want to very similar populations in terms of socioeconomic status. Right. Um, If you were in need of help and could use a little extra money— would you rather get help from temporary assistance to needy families or from the earned income tax credit?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And most people, I think, will say the earned income tax credit. So it's worth unpacking why. Right. So it's earned income and it's a tax credit. Mm-hmm. It just feels right in our kind of um, society that values hard work. We live in this kind of post-Puritanical, like, inheritors of the Calvinist tradition kind of right. place. You know, the idea that work is at the center of our identity and is what gives us worth is a fairly common idea throughout the U.S. And so if I'm going to get a tax credit like every other American, I go file my taxes in the spring and then I get my tax refund. And Mm -hmm. that's how I, you know, um, this is I'm owed it. You know, I deserve it from my hard work. Now, on the other hand, think about the framing of temporary assistance to needy families. So it kind of cues up this thing that you know is not going to be around. It makes you feel contingent to begin with. Sure. Um, and it's assistance. It's not a tax credit, even though it's exactly the same thing. It's right. a, a redistribution of cash to people who don't have a lot of it right, for right, people that right. have more. Um, and it's for needy families. So I have to um, sacrifice um, some of my dignity in order to even get the help. And self-identify as needy in indeed way, right? indeed and in need of temporary assistance right right, right. <laughs> and this is to say nothing of the qualitative experiences that you go through to access one of these programs Sure, just the language barrier right just sure. the way that it's described is um barrier enough never mind the way that you're treated when you walk into one of these offices looking for help sure Um, Never mind the indignity of maybe having to submit to a drug test or whatever, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't drug test congressmen. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Um, we should. Maybe we should. (laughs) Um, But in any case, that's the the power of language is thinking about, you know, how just words, just word choices can make a big difference. And in the same way, we talked earlier about loss aversion. And so should it matter— that i'm telling you don't lose out on your $3000 pell grant versus hey make sure that you you know get your $3000 pell grant. it shouldn't but the way that our brains are set it up does. means that it does yes
0: and and so how how is this how is this point operationalized do do you encourage or require partners to adopt a certain vocabulary when running a an experiment or, or, or working through a project. I assume there would be significant challenges if, um, if each partner used different language to describe similar things. That creates friction. That creates um, uh, dissonance. And and so so how how is language utilized in or operationalized?
1: It's, it's a good question, and again, I'm not going to give you one answer because it varies so much. Sure. So when we run an experiment, we do require control, right? It's a, it's a randomized controlled trial. So we need to be sure that one part of the population is getting one thing and the other is not getting that thing but something else. And so when language is at the heart of the thing that we're running the experiment on, then we must insist, in fact. Sure. That um, that organizations work with us to ensure that some part of the population gets one framing, one use of language, and mm-hmm. the other doesn't. Um, and that's really just for evidentiary purposes, right? <laughs> like we just want to make sure that we have a good experiment. Yeah, totally. Um, and it's not necessarily like an ideological cudgel that we're like <laughs> sure, you're doing sure, it wrong, sure, or organization sure, sure, or whatever. Sure. That being said, we also um, encourage organizations to think about that implicit message that comes across in all of the language that they use. And so we, as an organization, but particularly the teams here in New York City, run what we call communications audit workshops with organizations, both in the public and in the private nonprofit sector. And those workshops are a chance for these organizations to learn like, very practical lessons About behavioral science, particularly as it applies to the way that we communicate and therefore implicitly the way that we use language. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we really encourage them to do is think about that TANF versus EITC example and to think about where in their organization, where in the way that they use language with their staff as well as with the clientele that they're trying to serve, there's opportunities to frame people better to to tell a different implicit story about who we are and who you are and what we're doing together. Mm -hmm. Would you rather have a caseworker or a mentor, for example? Sure. You know? Sure. Um, And would you, if you needed help, rather go to the Department of Social Services or the Department of Human Services? You know, like these things can seem trivial, but they do matter. Right. And so, um, yeah, language is super critical. We don't um, coerce organizations into doing things that they don't want to do or can't do. Um, But when we're running an experiment, we think it's super important to try to differentiate the effects of different words, different framing, but also different messengers. So, do people react differently, act differently, choose differently if they're getting an email from their dean of financial aid? Versus from another student versus maybe from their academic advisor or a professor that they've taken a class with like mm-hmm. these things matter, too Sure. Um, so sometimes when we run experiments um, We'll embed smaller experiments or pseudo experimental methods within them. For example, a B testing of subject lines or right. email senders right to see which ones prompt some proxy behaviors that we think are important to our theory of change So how do you get more people to open the message if the kind of intervention is built into the email, but they don't open it, then what's the email worth really?
0: (laughs) And this is taking, this is taking, uh, you know, maybe a a best practice from industry and
1: applying it to, into the social sector. Indeed, indeed. indeed. And, um, I am very excited about that. If we can learn things from the for-profit world that have helped make people money and instead use them to make people better, that's great. Yeah, right. Um, fascinating. So talk to
0: me a little bit about the importance of localizing impact. The, the idea of, of not trying to solve, name the federal program, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but but trying to localize and improve, name the federal program in a specific mm-hmm. community or city.
1: Yeah. I'll say I'll say two things about this. And they describe what I lovingly call the pincers maneuver that we try to perform at Ideas 42. Nice. So one, the first side of the pincer is the incremental change that we are ethically bound to continue pursuing. Because we've got systems that people rely on People rely on food stamps. They rely on federal financial aid. They rely on subsidized housing. And it really is our duty to take the knowledge that we've got about human choice and action and apply it to those existing programs as they are right, to make them work as well as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. So that's arm one of the pincer. Okay, And that speaks to your question about localism. We're going to do a better job at those things when we really have a good handle on the local context. And we are working really hard at that in New York City. So we've got several teams that are locally based that work exclusively on local issues, one of which is embedded with and partners with the Mayor's Office of Operations here in New York, another of which um, works in tandem with the CUNY community college system, the public higher education system another of which is working hand-in-hand with NYCHA on quality of life issues in public housing, and a fourth of which is working directly with the nonprofit human services and civic engagement community here in New York City. And each of those teams is really dedicated to translating this research into on-the-ground practical interventions aimed at improving outcomes for the 8.5 million people that live in this city, um, and each of them is predicated on the notion that, number one, we have to democratize some of this knowledge. So there's elements of applied behavioral science that really can and should be used by frontline practitioners. You don't need a Ph.D. in social psychology right. to make your communications easier to read, Right. Right. Um, to use things like A-B testing and subject lines sure. to help prompt people to open them. So um, that and we're also... Um, Of the opinion, although the evidence can bear this out, that when we have both tacit knowledge of communities, because the people that are on these teams live in New York, and they understand and interact with these systems themselves, and they have a lot of knowledge about the culture and the milieu and the zeitgeist of the city, um, and you combine that tacit knowledge of the environment with skin in the game, because this is our city too. These are our neighbors. Right then you get better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And and so that's what we're after in pursuing that local work in New York City to say, you know, we can't just parachute into other communities or other contexts where we don't know a lot and just get smart fast and do our best work. We still do that. That's Mm -hmm. still Mm -hmm. important work. You know, we can help people in um, Nepal make Um, better contexts for reproductive health providers to help people make choices about long-acting contraception. Great. We should do that. Sure. And we're headquartered in New York. Right. (laughs) There's 50 of us that work here. Right. We need to be improving our own community as well. So if we are working in East Africa, we should also be working in East New York, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. That's at least my perspective, and we're likely to do um, a really, really good job and realize some efficiencies because we understand the context that we're working in and we live in it. Yeah, sure. So, okay, pincer one, think locally, think small, make incremental changes, take the systems that already exist and continually optimize them Mm -hmm. because- the people that need them now can't wait for some perfect future when they're right now trying to feed their kids and graduate from college. Right. Pincer 2, though, is maybe a bit more utopian and maybe a bit more at that high level. And Pincer 2 says, okay, we've got these systems. We know that people rely on them. We're going to keep fiddling with them and making them better. Uh, but wouldn't it be better if we just built them right in the first place? Sure. Wouldn't it be better if we could reimagine, tear down, and rebuild systems, policies, and programs with a behavioral lens from the beginning Mm -hmm. and probably with continuous quality improvement and experimentation um, built into their infrastructure. Right. So that we build a good thing and keep making it better by design. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's Pincer 2 is really thinking: well, okay, we can help. People recertify their food stamps more effectively and we can help keep people in WIC effectively and we can remind people um, in a useful way to file their financial aid. But like, wouldn't it be better if these federal systems could just talk to each other Mm -hmm. and could automate some of these things that are highly manual and effortful now? And wouldn't it just make more sense if all of their eligibility criteria kind of matched up Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that... The thing that applies to Medicaid is the same thing that applies to SNAP is the same thing that applies to Section 8. Sure, is the same thing that applies to FAFSA. Right, and um, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could um, have all of those things automated and harmonized and easier to access? Um, so that's that's some of the more um, I guess utopian vision that we've got. About how behavioral science can actually build better systems from the ground up. It
0: seems to me that that Pincer One local directly feeds into Pincer Two is uh, sort of system based. Indeed. because by running these experiments, even if they are localized or relatively small uh, in terms of scale, the outcome is that you are you are not biasing the results that that come out so you know what interventions work and what interventions can scale is is that is that correct
1: 100% right the thing that we're doing when we do that pincer one the local stuff the small stuff the incremental stuff is providing evidence mm-hmm. for our claim that undergirds pincer number 2 right so we're accumulating yeah. dozens of experiments that right. say hey just make these things easier to access. Yep. Hey, just use language that empowers people. Hey, build in some uh, power for the people that are accessing these things to help shape how they're designed. because mm-hmm. It'll work better. Mm-hmm. So we're accumulating um, a variety of pockets of evidence to bolster the claim that may sound utopian, but is actually like highly pragmatic. Right. Um, if you look at the evidence. And
0: And can we talk a little bit about the mechanics here? how does an engagement sort of uh, a new engagement come together? Is ideas 42 going to a new location or a new community, a new city and saying we improved outcomes by X percent in New York. And it's highly likely that you have a similar problem set. Mm -hmm. And so ergo we're able to Mm -hmm. improve Mm -hmm. outcomes or um, does it require a city community location to first acknowledge their own problem set mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so as to engage ideas 42 in the the process of of developing a solution
1: mm-hmm. so we're a 501c3 nonprofit and what that means is that we rely on grant funding, so on philanthropy, to pay most of our bills. We do some fee-for-service work, but that's not like a huge chunk of what we do. Mm -hmm. And we chose that highly constraining structure for our organization because the folks that founded the organization wanted it to stay honest to its mission. So our mission is to improve the lives of millions of people around the world using insights from behavioral science. Mm -hmm. And there is always, I think... An impulse to, let's say, commercialize things, sure, or to you know m- move with some celerity that might not encourage caution, and so creating uh, an organization that was structured as a nonprofit means that we have um, to rely on philanthropy, and we've got you know clearer. Um, reporting requirements to the federal government to show that we're doing charitable work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it means that we move slower, frankly, than um, like a private sector entity would. And I think that that's okay. Cause we still move faster than a lot of like public sector <laughs> yeah, agencies. It's right. um, a nice, That's a nice uh, middle ground <laughs> to, to, to occupy. So the reason that I bring that up though, is because we um, do rely on willing and enthusiastic partner organizations to do our work. Mm -hmm. So we're never going to go into any kind of environment and um, just tell people here's how it is or set up our own thing. Sure. And like whatever the tech people say, move fast and break things. That's not what we do. Right. We, We rely on the expertise and goodwill and networks of partner organizations that are out there doing the work we're merely there to help them do that work a little better, a little more efficiently, mm-hmm. with a little more input from the folks that they're trying to serve or to improve some of the outcomes that they're after. So um, we always rely on partners in city government or nonprofit organizations um, to be ready, willing, and able to run these experiments with us. Mm-hmm. And when they work, to try to scale them up um, to make sure that they're hitting as many people as possible. Got
0: it. Got it. So, so you have – you if city government – you have government partners mm-hmm. who are on the front line, who are who are doing the best, but they they have challenges that you help them solve. And then you have maybe call them foundations or mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. funding mechanisms um, that allow you all to run experiments, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. provide services, to do, do ongoing operations in a particular place. Ever. Become city financed. I mean, and is that yes. an important component of sustainability when it becomes a yeah. program of record or or, or some version mm-hmm. of no longer external functions trying to intervene, mm-hmm. but but mm-hmm. but more thoroughly embedded into the into the city based system.
1: The ideal circumstance for something like a public sector entity is that they develop their own internal capacity Mm -hmm. to continue the work that we begin with them ad infinitum. Yeah. And so in the two cities that we've got teams in, in Chicago and New York, they both began with private philanthropic dollars, fully funding the work. Right. And over time, um, and I think, you know, without any false humility, The work that we did proved itself valuable to those cities. And so both Chicago and New York started paying um, in Chicago fully and in New York partially Mm -hmm. for the work that we were doing out of their own budgets. Right. And so then the next trick is, which isn't um, a challenge that we've totally solved yet, but one that we're working on, is to over time transmit the information that we've got, the knowledge, but also the know-how to people in the public sector, because I don't actually think that ideas 42, a private nonprofit organization should replace the function of public sector entities. Sure. I think that we have a lot to offer and that, you know, when it's feasible, we can come in, do a thing, leave it with an organization, and they're better off because of it. In the case of something like these massive institutions like cities mm-hmm. or university systems, I think that it's incredibly valuable for us to work with them for a period of time to transmit this stuff to them and then leave them with more capacity so that we don't have to be there forever, you know? Yeah, sure. And this is probably just an artifact of my being a social worker because one of the things that we always said was that we were trying to work ourselves out of a job. Right. And I feel like that's one of the things that we're trying to do here. Um, but I don't think that we've figured out how to do it yet, but we're working on it. So the um, we do capacity building workshops, mm-hmm. like I said earlier, about communications, but we also do them with processes and with thinking about the lens of scarcity, which is important when working with people without a lot of resources. And we're building modules on things like leadership and decision making, so how to manage um, risk under uncertainty. And debias those choices, and thinking about diversity and hiring. So we're working on how to transmit some of the specialized knowledge that we've got in usable ways to the entities that we partner with, but we haven't figured it out yet.
0: One more question on, on this point is: I I really I appreciate this this model for for a variety of reasons, but but one of them is that you rely on data that mm-hmm. this is evidence based and and i imagine that's an important function of of sustainability these are exciting concepts it's uh, new language it may be invigorating for a city agency or a city worker um people on the ground may understand or acknowledge the mm-hmm. the, the problem mm-hmm. but i think your model if i if i understand it correctly um is, is directly tied to uh evidence-based improvements In, um, indeed, which indeed. which maps nicely so for 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 my point of sustainability so new team on the ground mm-hmm, mm-hmm. new language new processes new functions and over time you're able to map these new processes mm-hmm, this new mm-hmm, language mm-hmm. to, improved outcomes for your neighbors indeed, the, pe- indeed. The, the people in a community. Uh that to me is is powerful and a different function than what may be called sort of disruption where um yes you, 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 you don't know where you're going to end up per se but you just recognize that something needs to change. Um it is that that is that an important component of of um, how you all think and and the value proposition as as you engage these different communities?
1: I certainly think so. We as as I kind of alluded to earlier, aren't necessarily in the business of wholesale reconstruction of things or sure. or destruction and reconstruction, not like um, you know Schumpeter or whatever, and <laughs> <laughs> in, and instead. Um, you know, we try to take that pragmatic view that these are systems that exist. These are programs that exist. And as you say, if and when there's data, that's the thing that allows us to run our experiments, to design them well in the first place, because mm-hmm. our process really requires us to go from diagnosis to design. So never try to put something out in the field without understanding the context. Right. Right and what behavioral levers might be driving suboptimal outcome. Mm-hmm. So first understand the problem. You know, people aren't renewing their SNAP um, at high enough rates, and they come back in 90 days. You understand what the problem is. But then diagnose what's going wrong. You know, right. Is it forgetting? Is it procrastination? Is it hassles? Is it identity threat? Is it something completely different? And only after understanding that context do you then design something mm-hmm. and then test whether it works. Right. And all of those stages really require that we have data, Mm -hmm. both to understand what the problem is, to understand what's driving it, but then importantly, to measure whether we've made any difference. Hmm. And when we can do all of those things, it allows our process to go forward, but it does make it a sustainable process, as you're implying, partially because we can make cost effectiveness arguments. Sure, You know, that like whatever it was that it cost us in terms of time and materials was worth it because right. we made this amount of difference for this many people. Sure, sure. So, you know, that's, again, one of the things that we are trying to transmit to a lot of the partners that we work with is not just, oh, if I use loss aversion, I can get people's attention, <laughs> yeah, right? but also, like, be rigorous in understanding what you've done, um, m- importantly, because sometimes it doesn't work. right. And this is one of the things that we get very animated about when we talk to people about running experiments and using evidence to make determinations about policies and programs. Um, People are like, we kind of know and like, isn't it expensive and effortful? Mm -hmm. And I always argue that, like, do you actually know? Yeah, right. (laughs) And might it be better even if you do know that it's good? And it is, I think, our ethical, um, like we're ethically bound to understand what's going right and what's going wrong in public services, particularly ones that serve people without a lot of resources or sure. people that are marginalized, we should know if we're doing a good job, right? And we should always be trying to do better. And we don't do that without data. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't do that without good impact evaluations. Powerful. Yeah.
0: Powerful. Wrapping up. Where can uh, where can listeners find out more about I- Ideas Forty Two? Where Where can they find you online? Where should Where should uh, listeners be looking?
1: So we've got a ton of great resources for folks at our website. So that's ideas42.org. And I think we're a pretty good follow on Twitter at ideas42. I would also encourage people, if they're interested in the more academic side of things, mm-hmm. to check out some other websites like the Behavioral Evidence Hub. So that's bhub, dot And then you can also check out our magazine, The Behavioral Scientist, online as well. And you'll find things like um, pretty layperson accessible write-ups of research and columns from behavioral scientists and so forth. Um, And if you're a policymaker, person in public service, you can always look up the Behavioral Science and Policy Association as well. Great. Um, And if you wanted to find me, you want some of my um, radical leftist hot takes on Twitter, um, I'm at Anthony underscore Barrows, B-A-R-R-O-W-S. Anthony Barrows, Ideas42. Thanks so much.
0: You got it. Cheers. That does it for this episode of Super Cities. Before we go, some real talk. Cities feel broken, too expensive, too crowded, too chaotic. So we created Super Cities to elevate the people and trends moving cities forward. This movement is just getting started. So please rate, review and subscribe to Super Cities and tag us using hashtag Super Cities. Your support really helps, and I'm thankful for it. This is Brendan Hart and Super Cities, signing off for now.